This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is not an invitation to make an investment and should not be construed as advice. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Investec Asset Management. The value of investments can fall as well as rise and losses may be made. This week on The Big Picture, the big picture turns into a giant canvas. I'm speaking to Jason Borbera, who's an assistant portfolio manager at Investec Asset Management in London. And it's almost the 10-year anniversary of the collapse of Lehman Brothers, Jason. And that, of course, precipitated the giant collapse of the stock markets, which bottomed in March of 2009. But that period between September 2008 and March 2009 was a very tricky period for the world. We pulled ourselves out of it. But what have we learned since then? And indeed, what lessons should we have learned since then? Maybe go back a bit. What actually happened? Sure. So in September 2008, you saw a collapse of sort of one of the largest financial institutions in the world. And I think what's potentially more interesting about that anniversary is that actually a year before the problems had started to occur. So it was in August of 2007 when BMP Paribas froze withdrawals from some of its funds, which held investments related to subprime mortgages in the US. And it was basically over the following year that the credit crunch began to appear and trust evaporated from markets and therefore people were unable to extend lines of credit and those that needed it unable to achieve them. And uh, this sort of precipitated the the fall of Lehman Brothers. Yeah, subprime was one thing, but wasn't specifically related to Lehman Brothers. But because of the interconnectivity of these instruments, the whole banking system was affected. It wasn't just subprime, though, was it? Were there also some less than kosher, if you like, banking activities that were going on associated with that time of profligate instruments and behaviour? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And it basically caused a reassessment of credit worthiness. And the the trust that went with that is exactly, I think, what caused Lehman's to, to suffer the kind of downfall that it did. Since then, of course, we've recently seen some fairly stellar results from Wall Street banks. I don't know where they're getting their money from, but I mean, are they starting to sort of ease their way back into those practices of 10 years ago? Or are the results that we're seeing now based on good, solid fundamentals? I think it's remarkably different. So if you look at return on equity for banks prior to the crisis and compare it to now, you've probably halved your ROEs. And so you're lucky in the US to sort of achieve double digits there. Uh, and that would have been a, a far cry from what you would have saw prior to the crisis. And a lot of that has come from regulation, from the fact now that banks have stepped away from proprietary trading and that the sorts of loans that they extend have, have changed also. And that's not to say that there's not signs of excess in some parts of the market. So I think if you look at the kind of loans that have been extended in the autos market in particular, and some credit card markets also, then there's signs that there's been that similar sort of profligate lending, but it doesn't appear to be of the same magnitude as you saw with the banks lending into the collapse of the US housing market. And equally, other forms of lending has come in to pick up that slack. So that's not to say that profligacy is not still occurring, but perhaps it's being made by other forms of lenders, non-bank lending in particular. You give me three aspects of the last decade in a piece that you kindly sent me earlier today. You say three aspects of the last decade stand out. First, the rise in passive investing. And you go on to say that it's estimated around $8 trillion worth of assets are passive and account for about one-fifth or 20% of global assets under management. Why have you particularly picked up on that one? Is that a warning sign to you? It is, I think. And it's just amazing, I think, how different the world in terms of market structure looks today to that in the early 2000s. And one aspect of that is 
how investors now seem to allocate their investments, and in particular the rise in ETFs. So you've gone from sort of maybe 600 or so in the early 2000s to now probably over 6,000. And there are more indices than there are in individual stocks, which I think says something about how people now want to invest. They seem to, to place a bit more importance on the sort of top-down view than the bottom-up. And, and we think actually that could be a potential pitfall as you move into the next crisis. Second point you make is that investors would accept negative yields over the last decade or certain parts of it with um, 20% of the developed market government bond index offering such returns. Now, that was an extraordinary moment in time, wasn't it? It has rebalanced itself since then. But at one stage, people were willing to give someone something and receive less than they gave them a year later. Yeah, there's been a bit of a rebalancing, but it's still the case that across many parts of Europe and in Japan, you are guaranteeing, if you hold to maturity, a negative return on your investment. And that tends to be towards the shorter end of the curve, i.e. you know, one to five year maturities. But nevertheless, there are still those that, for whatever reason it might be, either they think that inflation is going to be so low as that a negative nominal return could be converted into a positive real return, or they believe that someone else will buy the bond from them at even lower yields than that at which they buy it. Final point of the three that you made, related perhaps you say to all of the above or the previous two that we've spoken about, is that central banks could create money through the quantitative easing programmes. The Fed's balance sheet, you say in brackets, uh, alone grew from around $1 trillion to $4.5 trillion at its peak, and do this without stoking significant economic inflation. Of course, that has been rebalanced now, mentioning that word again, because quantitative tightening has become a reality or should become a reality, I think. Yes. And I think for us, this is the worrying aspect of all of the three points, really, in those three prior points that we've made. Because as we move over the next year or so, with the Federal Reserve running their balance sheet off later this year, the ECB stopping their program, and potentially, we think, the Bank of Japan looking to at least perhaps stop their program also, there is a big change in the, the sort of next two to three years compared to the last two to three years. And that to us is quite a significant worry because one of the things which doesn't appear to have changed is a tendency that people herd into particular trades. And so the idea that you see this rise in passive investing where um, people are buying broadly without really understanding the fundamentals of what they own, the idea that people will buy things with negative yields without perhaps contemplating the impact of that, and the fact that you've had this big buying program from central banks, the confluence of those I think is potentially worrying. And it was noteworthy, I think, that if you go back to the start of 2008, you had the S&P 500 consisting of around a fifth of its exposure in financial companies. And that's fallen quite significantly since then. But it shows you that there's not always that realization that things are changing and that investors haven't particularly changed how they move on mass into things. I don't think that investors will ever get away from that herd mentality because of the media, because of the fact that they don't want to be contrarian, because they want to be in a sort of a set of people that are doing the same thing. That's human nature, I suppose. But do you think that we are getting to the point now where with the S&P and the Dow approaching all-time record highs, the S&P at all-time record highs as we speak, that it's at record highs for the wrong reasons and for some of the reasons that you've already outlined? It may not necessarily be that it's wrong for it to be there today. I think it's always quite difficult to stand against where it's moved to. Although I did note that actually in in those few days that ran up to BNP Paribas freezing withdrawals, the S&P had rallied nearly 4%. And so it does show you that there's not always information 
in the market because it then fell 50% over the next couple of years. Yeah. What I would say, though, is that I think investors need to start thinking more about how to insulate their portfolios from potential falls. So as we sit at record highs, as valuations don't look particularly appealing, and as we think the chance of recession is starting to, albeit gradually, but nevertheless increase, at least over the next couple of years, then it's important, we think, to start thinking about owning assets that could benefit from that sort of environment. Anyone listening to this is going to say, well, I'm just looking at a graph now, a bar chart of US GDP growth. And okay, three times during the Obama era, it was above 4%. But uh, 4.1% was the original GDP print, the latest GDP print, revised to 4.2%. He or she might be saying that uh, Jason Bulbara is probably uh, being a little bit pessimistic to even think about recession. Yeah, absolutely. But markets don't peak on bad news. Markets tend to peak on good news. And I think it's one of those things now where ultimately the gains over the last near decade have been very significant. What we suggest investors do now is try and think about ways to lock in some of those gains. And also, if the environment turns a bit more tricky, and that might be because quantitative easing now starts to go into reverse, liquidity is less easily available than it was before because central banks become more tight from an interest rate policy perspective. And also just that the economic cycle perhaps does look a bit frayed in, in some aspects. Therefore, there's, there's enough need to start thinking about insulating portfolios. Jason, thank you very much for your time. That's Jason Borborough, who is an assistant portfolio manager at Investec Asset Management in London. In South Africa, Investec Asset Management is an authorised financial services provider.